This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, all right, Pastor Bruss and Pastor Oakry, we are on to John chapter 2. We've really got two uh, distinct episodes in this chapter. We've got uh, Jesus at the wedding of Cana, and then uh, we have a voyage into Jerusalem shortly thereafter. And there's a lot of ink spilled over this. Uh, In John, the cleansing of the temple comes much earlier than it does in the other Gospels. And the question then is simply this, is, uh, is John, has John placed this out of order? In other words, he's not, he's not stringing it together as Jesus first went to the wedding of Cana and then immediately thereafter he went into Jerusalem. That's one way of understanding it. The other way to understand it is that there are actually two cleansings of the temple. Um, and I don't know if we need to resolve that issue right now, but uh, for those people out there who have been presented with this as a problem for the accuracy of the scriptures, uh, those those complaints just dissolve when you when you think about the different approach that each of these writers had. Wouldn't you say though that the majority view is that Jesus cleanses the temple twice? That's the that's definitely the traditional view of it. But there is another uh, another I think strong argument to be made that what John is doing it's this aesthetic called tes- tessellation uh, where you take it's like a mosaic. You're building a mosaic of Jesus. And each of the each of the little tessera, the little uh, tiles for the mosaic, is interesting in and of itself. And so you can just sort of gaze at that, and and that's neat, right? But then you, what you do is you, as you sort of you focus in real close to that single tessera, and then you pull away, and more of the picture starts to come into view, and you see the the beauty of the whole thing, and so. The, the argument is that you know this, this was a pretty typical uh, way of of communicating, of creating a portrait of somebody in the ancient world. But and it's foreign to most English readers, for sure. Maybe modern readers absolutely. thinking in that and thinking in those terms. I, I, yeah, I, I think so for sure. You know, you have Pliny, for example, Pliny's Lives, uh, w- which is very interesting. There is no, I mean, there's almost no connection between episodes like temporal connection between episodes it's just it's just i want to focus on this aspect of this guy's personality or deeds or and that's fascinating so this tessellation wouldn't you say that that's even embodied in the church year totally as, as we focus on different texts yeah they're not really following a a linear Progression. That's really that's a really great observation. Uh, re, I mean, that's a really really good observation. I had never even thought about that for the church year. I think for people who encounter, uh, you know, many most of our people, most of Missouri's and Lutherans experience the church year using series A, B, or C, which is um, which really lines up the life of Jesus in a kind of historical way. The one year series, the historic series, does not do it that way. That's good. That's that's really good. But I think that raises a, a new question, which is um, kind of broadly speaking about the Gospels. Which one of the Gospels is more chronologically true uh, versus the others? Because there is, you, you do run into John a uh, certain very, spe- a lot of specificity about uh, the time and place of things. But 
again, maybe he's not concerned so much about the broader chronology. He really wants us to know it was during this feast, this festival, those kind of things. And that's a major feature of John is that is the is the connection of the life of Jesus to the festivals of the Jewish church here. You're you're absolutely right. You know, look at the temporal marker here um, uh, in verse 13 of chapter two. In verse 12, we actually have a temporal marker. After this. Um, he went down into Capernaum himself and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they remained not many days. Now, verse 13, really interesting. It doesn't say after this. It just says, and the Passover of the Jews was near. So one way to read that would be to understand it as you know, after these couple of days that they stayed in Capernaum, the Passover was near. Another way would be just to say, no, look, I'm on to a to- totally different episode here, and uh, we're going to shift gears, and we're going from this whole thing that happened at Cana, and now we're going to talk about the this instance when the Passover was near. I would say, just for our listeners, if they're interested in a resource like this, the Reese Chronological Bible uh, there was a guy, Reese was his last name. I don't, I can't remember what his occupation was uh, before, uh, but he got sick and he was sick for a long time. And uh, one of the things that he did while he was sick and laying in bed uh, was he got together a bunch of King James Bibles and put them in chronological order. Now, again, obviously he's he's guessing at some points, but you can still get the Reese Chronological Bible, and uh, but it's only going to be in King James. Uh, you can find chronological Bibles in different versions, but if people are interested in following through a, clon- a chronological order, it, it's it's quite uh, it's it's quite interesting and, of a read. And this is for the Old Testament as well. Correct. Right. Right. So so the Isaiah prophecies. Uh, his preaching comes in the middle of Hezekiah's reign. Oh, right. Connected into um, the books of the kings. Sure. Yeah. And like when you open it up, there's going to be psalms in there about, you know, before you made the heavens and the earth. It's quite interesting to open up to page one and be reading uh, certain psalms. Yeah. And then right after that, if I'm not mistaken, you know, it goes into the book of Job. Uh, Job being the oldest book in the Bible. And so you, you, you get all the way through Job and um, and there's portions of I think you know after the Psalms if I'm not mistaken like maybe Genesis one and two and three and I, I can't remember exactly the way that it goes down but the way that it's laid out and then especially when you get into the New Testament you've got this what harmony of the gospels the gospels yeah. as they're trying as Reese is trying to piece together in a chronological way what happened so which in and of itself is interesting because. From very early on in the life of the church, there were attempts to harmonize the Gospels, to bring them into one unified story, and the church resisted that. And And I say that not to say that that isn't a very useful tool. I especially think that sometimes taking uh, the prophecies and putting them in the proper historical context is very useful. But I sometimes think, because I have a... Um, a parallel reading of the Gospels, one of those that has all of them laid out, and Synopticon, it, yep, yeah, and it and it and it tries to um, put things, I think, in chronological order, um, in that way, and I sometimes think that, especially in the Gospels, that can be a little bit of a fool's errand, um, because 
there's a reason why we have the four and those four are in harmony but also in tension with each other in some places and we ought not to let the tensions just make us throw our hands up and discuss they they they're we we they make us think and they make us uh pray <laughs> and they make us um and they really i think do strengthen our faith well there's no doubt that doing something like that does destroy that mosaic which was the original intent right and and, and what it does is it deals with um it, it's almost predicated upon a very modern idea that there's a the real story is behind the story. Like there's there's a Jesus behind the text. And the scriptures themselves protest against that. The Jesus that we have is the Jesus of the text. This is the only way to know him. And on top of that, it seems that, you know, it's almost like when you take the whole of the Bible and try to put it in this chronological order, even though, I mean, I will admit that it's an interesting resource, it's almost like it just gets, just give me the facts. Just mm-hmm. just give me the bare facts, you know, like Columbo trying to piece together some sort of crime scene that he wasn't, he wasn't able to witness. Yeah, it's very empirical, wouldn't you say? And sterile. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and we have something similar with the story, right? That uh, the rather recent, in the last 10 years, an attempt to narrativize all of Scripture uh, mm-hmm. chronologically. Um, I think Zondervan may have done that. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, anytime, anytime there's a buck to be made, <laughs> I mean, all you got to do is take Reese chronological Bible and like change one psalm from here to here, and hey, we can sell it. Got a new book? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Copy, copyright that one to death. So maybe the bigger question, of course, we're going to be getting into the text here is why did John think it was so important to put the wedding at Cana in contrast or in parallel with the cleansing of the temple? That is interesting. And we'll, we'll actually talk about what, what John's actual terminology means when he says, when he talks about the beginning of signs. It's not, it's not as straightforward as it seems. So why don't we begin with a reading of uh, John chapter 2, and we'll have somebody go from 2.1 through, I think it would be very good to go through 2.11. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars, stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants whom had, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. First thing I, I love about this is, is uh, how the English translation bodlerizes uh, verse 10. And he says to him, Every man first puts out the good wine, and when they are drunk, the worse. That's interesting, isn't it? 
Yeah. So, but it's grape juice, Pastor Bruce. Yeah, no, I mean, no. <laughs> it, well, is it, now isn't that an? Int- I had never even thought about this as a as a piece of evidence for the use of wine. Oh yeah, yeah no, yeah. you obviously haven't run into folks who are real insistent on turning every reference to wine into grape juice. Right before refrigeration. I mean, that's what's fascinating about it, right. which is what is demanded. Believe me, there are legions of papers out there about how easy it was to make grape juice back in the ancient world because why because they want to it it's not exegesis it's it's eisegesis it's well, i i'm reading into the text sure. what i need to be in there right but i don't know how you get around people getting drunk well, <laughs> from grape juice it's a lot you have to drink a lot maybe it's a sugar high <laughs> <laughs> sugar drunk just just to mention this, there's one low-alcohol wine that we know of uh, from the ancient world. Pliny writes about it. We just talked about Pliny. Uh, Pliny writes about it in his natural history. He, he writes about it because it's so remarkable. He's got this whole thing on viticulture, which is really cool. Um, but there's this lake up in the uh, Apennines in Italy, and what the people around there used to do is they would harvest the grapes, and they would squish them you know and get the juice out they'd put it in a wine skin and then uh, they would weight the wine skin down and throw it into the cool depths of the lake and when they wanted some fresh grape juice they would pull it up and it wasn't fermented and he remarked i mean he made a huge remark about how weird this practice was how uncharacteristic that's early refrigeration this yeah. is you have to have refrigeration uh, uh, in order to have grape juice absolutely and you know the the ancient wine was actually like mad dog or something like that it was heavy duty alcohol 20 percent plus that's how uh heavy they brewed it so i remember hearing about how uh you know they wouldn't say that it was grape juice there were there were factions that would say that it was grape juice in my uh, fundy to the undy days uh, but then there were others who would say it would just be just a hint of wine dropped in water have you ever had a hint of wine no, no. dropped in water no but they used to cut their wine and they they would cut it they would cut it at a 50 percent ratio sure but this is just like but that would still be well, stronger than what we have today right right. Yeah, right but this would be uh, the amount of wine that would go into a a glass of water would be, yeah. you know, what we have in our individual glasses yeah. during the sacrament of the altar. Yeah. Just silliness. But again, I mean, Pastor Ogre said it best. I mean, it is, uh, it's not exegesis, it's eisegesis. It's starting with the presupposition and then reading that into the text, again, which is a danger for all of us. It is. Yep. That's a good point. What are we going to make of on the third day? There is all sorts of pregnant stuff in here. Isn't yeah, there? right. Like, yeah. And I think I, I love the way of saying that. There's things that are going to make us naturally think of other things. and But you don't want to necessarily say that this is the thing. It's it's pregnant with anticipation of the thing. It is. And and so, you know, if we, if we take a really hyper-linear approach with the gospel according to St. John, as we would as a modern, we're going to be very disappointed in our reading. Uh, but if we take the tessellated approach, where we just we're getting these little sparkling gems in this big mosaic, right? Uh, and you know, in this little red tile, I'm getting a hint of the blood that's going to come off the cross. That's how John wants us to read his gospel, and I th- I think it's I think it's pretty cool. So yeah, what we've got a hint, right? Yeah. Uh, the third day. But again, going back to your tessellated comment. You're not supposed to get everything in 
say these 13 verses. I mean, it's it's written so that as you walk through it, or maybe uh, to stay with the metaphor, look at the picture, you'll come to the very last tessellation, which would be, these things are written that you may believe. Mm-hmm. That who you're seeing, i.e. Jesus Christ, is who he said that he is. He's the Son of God. I think that's a very important point, right? That that's the arc that 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 um, joins every one of these tessera together. It, it's like he leaves the keys to the house at the back door under the mat. Yeah, good, good. So finally, we get to that point, and it's like, oh, I get it. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the door. The front door is not open. So so go. You know, we can go actually speaking of back doors. Go to the very end here, where John makes the comment about what what we're supposed to see in this whole miracle at Cana. Before you do that, can yeah. I can I tell you why I, this is so interesting to me? Is because there was a teacher over at uh, one of my daughter's schools. They were going through the Book of John. Uh, the question on the table was, why was the gospel according to St. John written? And uh, the answer that was given by the teacher was life change. Oh, good night. Not that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the of, Son of, of God. All the books, yeah, of, of all right, the books. Of all the books that get it wrong. Like right. The book itself is so crystal clear. <laughs> Twice. Yes. yes. So you think about looking back at this mosaic. And it's supposed to spur, spur me on to life change? What a damning conclusion. Right. It just drains Jesus out of the text. Isn't that, hor- isn't that horrifying, actually? Yeah. I mean, and honestly, the, the role of the disciples here, I mean, I don't even know where you're seeing the life change. Of course, this is just maybe just, well. It's evangelical. He's an evangelical Jesus yeah, again, yeah, right? Yeah. But what are the disciples doing in all this? They're just sitting there watching kind of with their, their mouths hanging open and probably their tongues hanging out, like just big dummies, and going, what on earth? But that's their job, is to witness, mm-hmm. right? They're not, their job, their lives are not supposed to be changed at this point. They're just witnessing. They're just collecting, and, and they're waiting for that moment, and really waiting for Pentecost. But there's also that revelation of Jesus appearing to them and breathing the Holy Spirit on them, and there's all these... Uh, steps along the way of revelation, mm-hmm. but but Jesus but, but, is driving them, <laughs> right? And and I do like what you're saying about their job is to witness. And in a sense, uh, it, it's always interesting to ask where. And I don't want it. I don't want this to be under, misunderstood. But the text locates me somewhere. It always locates me somewhere. It it just does. That's what God does. So where does it where does it locate me? I think it locates me as a witness of this now, right? It turns, it turns me into, into a witness. Now, when I say that, I don't mean somebody who gives witness to it, but somebody who, whose eyes are seeing the, this particular tessera right now. All right, where were you, Pastor Bruss? I interrupted well, you. Well, that's no, no, no problem. I, I, you know, so I loved what you said that um, the keys are in the back door and the keys are in the back door for this as well. So we get this whole... We, we, we examine the whole tessera, and we're saying, what in the world? Well, we go to verse 11. And Pastor Okri, um, why don't you read what the ESV says again? Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refine that because it's, it's, the, the Greek is much more pregnant than the English translation. Okay. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, 
and his disciples believed in him. Okay. It says this arche, this, well, I'm just going to leave that. This arche of signs. Beginning? Well, not necessarily. An arche doesn't have to be a, like a temporal beginning. It can be a source. It can be an archetype. It can be the, the thing that animates everything else. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. A little I, bit? I'm thinking through how, you know, as we said earlier, and you, you alluded to this, almost like a, a foreshadowing with these signs, English readers, especially data-driven English readers, you know, they want to go, okay, this was number one, this was number two, this was number three, and, you know, there's some argument about if there were seven or if Jesus' uh, resurrection was number eight or, you know, something like this. I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but... What you're suggesting is that it's, um, it's more than just, again, a chronological step-by-step uh, -step through, the, through the signs that Jesus did. Totally. And, and I think what I'm saying is that as an archetypal sign, there are things that we're to notice in this semeon. Now, there are only seven semea, seven signs in the gospel according to St. John. That's, that's pregnant. Uh, that's a number of completion. Um, so only seven signs in the, in the gospel according to St. John. They're also called signs and not miracles. So there are several terms uh, in, the, in the New Testament for what we would call miraculous events. In the gospel according to St. John, whenever John calls out one of these miraculous events and, and gives it a label, he gives it the label semeon, sign. Now, we've got to understand the, the sign language here. Um, a sign always points to something, right? right. You, don't, you don't just, ha you don't, like a, when it says, um, you know, you, you see a sign that says Lawrence, Kansas, 26 miles, the sign isn't Lawrence, Kansas. It's pointing to Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. So now let's, let's figure out what John intends by this sign and, and maybe then why it's, an, why it's archetypal. Um, he, he goes on to say, right, it says, this, this arche of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, now, here it is, and he manifested his glory. His uniqueness. Yes, his uniqueness, and, oh, oh look, and his disciples believed in him. So every time we see a semeon, what are we, what's supposed to happen? Belief. We're supposed to believe. And what is it supposed to show? Life change. No, <laughs> no. It's supposed to show his his glory. Now I don't know if we already talked about this. I think we may have, but glory. Um, see, John, in this tessellated kind of manner, he he drops these terms, and they get filled with meaning as you go through the gospel. Uh, as you kind of back away from the the tessera, the first tessera where you encountered it, and glory finally is culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus. That's Christ's glory. Which would be what is argued as the eighth arche. The, 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 the eighth semeon, his crucifixion, or his, is it, well, that would, that would have to be it. Not his resurrection, but his, right. So, so here's the problem I want to point out. Everybody thinks that when Jesus talks about glory in the gospel according to St. John, he's talking about the John chapter 20, the day of his resurrection. He's never talking about that. He's talking about the crucifixion. Which becomes clearer later on, like, I, I must be lifted up, right? right. It's glory, but it's glory in, in a 
completely unexpected way. Yeah, you were talking about this before we turned on the mics, right? You were saying that there's this paradoxical stuff going on. Of course, yes. Yeah. Weakness and strength. I mean, that's a that's a classic paradox in Scripture. And again, we, we've already been introduced to glory in chapter one, right? And it's this witness language. We have seen the glory of the only Son. Oh. And how significant is that, right? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? And this grace and truth, this gift giving, but it's also unmistakably true, is where faith flows from, right? Is where the belief is from. And so they're just getting little glimpses, like this guy's not just a guy, yeah. right? He, this is the word made flesh, tabernacling with us. His, his humanity is, don't over, I mean, it's in this context, not, not to deny his humanity, but it is kind of a, a screen over his glory, and then the signs give us a little glimpse of the glory uh, behind it, which becomes fully manifest after his crucifixion, after that final glorification. It's just, you, you just see it, and it's undeniable. Awesome. So we've got this glory, uh, and if this glory really is the glory of the crucifixion, now we've got a key for understanding this tessera. Now we've got a context. So let's talk about the details. This is the one thing that bothers me about this text. It seems like as a pastor, when we come to verse 4, we have to explain what Jesus says to his mother because it sounds so brusque to our ears, you know, we would never tell our mother these things. We would never say, woman! We'd right. never call her that. And we would never say, what does this have to do with me? I mean, it sounds like, well, it sounds like the way that my teenagers talk to me. But, but there's even a broader, more interesting context that I don't think we preach Not that enough. they call me woman, by the way. Just... <laughs> but there's this broader, more interesting context here, I think, where she's just called the mother of Jesus. This is the first time she's introduced. And I think even preaching, we're always just like, well, no, this is Mary. But in John's gospel, kind of on its own, she's just the mother of Jesus at this point, mm-hmm. kind of floating around. You're like, oh man, Jesus has a mother, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's a significant, obviously maybe written in light of the other gospels and people knowing that already. But but for John, it wasn't important to to elaborate. include a, a a birth narrative and elaborate on this, right? Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Well, the only birth narrative is verse 14 of chapter one, correct? The word became flesh. Correct. Correct. That's yeah, all it's you a get. one ver- a one verse a half yeah. of a verse birth narrative. But it is a denial of like you just the word became flesh through human means, at least partial human means, with the Holy Spirit uh, conceiving in the womb of Mary. But he has a mother. He has a mother. Yeah, right. It's not a Shazam thing. Yeah. Right. Well, wouldn't you say that it's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already recorded that there was no there was no reason to to fit that tile so to speak in the mosaic i I think that's one theory and that's that's the theory that places the gospel of the writing of the gospel of john late what do you what do you do if you're if you believe that the gospel according to saint john is written early prior to the other gospels um i i think you say much the same thing you say that of course this is in the kerygma of the church and uh, if the Apostles' Creed, you know, this is a fascinating thing. We have, we have the Apostles' Creed in a section of the Apostolic Constitutions from A.D. 80s. Knowing f- from like classics and other things like that, how long it takes for an oral, an oral piece of literature, I'm just going to use that term, an oral piece of literature to get into writing, it usually takes two to three generations. So work back. You're talking 20-year chunks. So the year's 80, 
work back one generation, 60, work back another generation, you're at 40. And so you're, you're right in the breast of the very f- earliest Christian church, which, which suggests that, that this creed, the Apostles' Creed, has currency already shortly after the life of Jesus, certainly within the time of St. Paul and St. Peter, certainly within the time of St. John, certainly within the time of St. Matthew. And so, you know, if even if you wanted to place the gospel according to St. John early in the 40s, it's time of composition, and we've got these sort of apparently missing details, how are the Christians hearing them? They're getting baptized with them. And, and lest you think we're making too much hay out of just one historical detail, there are fragments, creedal fragments buried in scripture itself in the writing of, of Paul and, and, and so on. I mean, and, and they're just there. Right. I mean, and, and so it really is difficult to put the Apostles' Creed far out, like past the Nicene Creed or something. This, what we believe was important to the early church. Yes. But I thought the yeah. disciples were sitting around a fire and uh, singing kumbaya and somebody said hey let's let's come up with 12 clauses right and it just started with one and then it went to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy (laughs) thomas we're going to give you the resurrection (laughs) thanks guys can can we talk a little bit about verse four what pastor kearns talked about Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it has to go right straight to what you were talking about with the signs when Jesus says, my hour has not come. Totally. And and there, there's even more. So the English translation of Jesus's response to his mother is really snippy, and it doesn't even account for what Jesus says. Literally what it says is, why does what belongs to me belong to you, woman? And that's That's what Jesus says. Now, what does your translation say? Woman. What does this have to do with me? Oh my gosh. I can't even, I, I just can't even understand how they get that. It's why is what is my business also your business? And then that makes sense of what he says. My hour has not yet come. So Mary, I mean, so, so at this point, what does Mary know? She knows everything. That this is the Savior coming to the flesh. And she's trying to hasten the hour and the business of her son. But it's interesting because her coming to Jesus really with a prayer, she's doing the right thing. And so it, and so it's interesting. And he does wind up answering her prayer. Again, we're brought into this place like, where where is Jesus at in this? Why, why He seems upset initially, but then he does it. And, uh, and, and, what, and even it seems like his mother does not come away from what he says as, as a rebuke, because she's just, she says to the servants, well, you heard him, do whatever he says, which is fascinating to me, because this is not how, if you just take this as Jesus rebuking Mary, it doesn't play out that way at all. Good, yeah, and, and so that's a huge mistake in the English translation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what he's going to do, it, it, he's not, his hour has not yet come. It's not, it's not here. And But going back to the way that you translated it, why is my business also your business? What he's doing is holding himself forth here as the sole redeemer of the world. And she knows this. And this, to go to your point, this is his doxa, his glory. What's unique about Jesus? He alone redeems. Yeah. So, And this is interesting because, wow, I mean, I just never even thought of this. What, what, is, what is Mary often held up as? 
in the Catholic Church. Co-redemptrix. Yeah. And this is a complete, complete repudiation of that. Correct. But it's also held up that she's the mediator, right? I mean, would right. this be an argument for mediation? Right, right, on the on the part of the Roman Catholic Church. Right, right. We're we're the wedding guests. Mary is the the mother of Jesus, who can approach him because we can't, and so she does it. And yeah. But of course, I think his repudiation of her is like, why are you trying to take control of this? Right. Uh, this is my job. This is my job. And and again, it's he's saying it's not even your job to necessarily bring the problem to me because I'm doing it. And she relinquishes. She relinquishes her her rights and responsibilities. She just says, "You deal with Jesus directly." And so that it's actually her relinquishing her media, mediating role. If if Jesus was embracing her mediating role, he would say to Mary, "Mary, go tell the servants what to do." That's that's excellent. That's really excellent. Let, let's just unpack a, f- a few more of the interesting details here, right? Um, I mean, these are jars of purification. That's interesting. That's baptismal. And there's water in them. Yeah. And later on, after there's water in them, there's wine. Wine in them. All the evocations here are pretty significant. The wine pointing to the bloodshed on the cross, other mm. things like that. Pastor Kearns, what are your thoughts? I'm just scrolling through the uh, evangelical hay that's made about, you know, there being six stone water pots. Uh, the six referring to man, you know, nobody ever touches. Oh, the, because it's the day that man was created. On right. It. I gotcha. Nobody ever referred to, as I recall, about what the, what is twenty and thirty mean. But boy, we got we we make hay about the six, and that how how would an evangelical go through this? You know, these stones represent man. Uh, the Lord wants to do a miraculous work in changing the water to the wine in your life. Well, that's the transformative part. Right. That's yeah. the life change yeah. again. Yeah. When, in fact, what we're dealing with is, is, is well, right. <laughs> what we're dealing with with vessels that have been purified. They, are, they can't be what, what he says they are if they haven't already been purified. They're not sitting there like waiting for purification, at least in the Jewish system. I mean, I think there is something to be said for the fact that these were the water. The jars weren't for purification. The water in the jars was for purification, for washing of purification. And I think there is a baptismal connection to make here. He comes to water meant specifically for baptizing in the cultus and the temple aspect. Of course, and I don't know. I don't. You know, I've never dawned on me why would this wedding have vessels of purification. Well, it's, it's a Pharisaic wedding. I mean, we know that Jesus hangs around typically with Pharisees. This is diaspora, rabbinic, Pharisaic Judaism. And so, you know, they extend um, in the synagogue setting where you you just don't have access to the temple like that. They they kind of reestablish the Levitical washings um, it, on a local basis. Yeah. And it makes you think, like, what happens when one of the Pharisees goes to wash his hands? And he's like, oh, this isn't so good anymore. And he's, you know, and you can see how he's changing, right? And maybe he takes a sip. He's like, maybe it's better than I thought. But, I, and I agree with you. There's a connection to the crucifixion, but it, there's a, there's the glory aspect of the crucifixion, not the suffering aspect. Because what does wine do? It gladdens the heart. Uh, we, we were brought into Old Testament imagery uh, from Joel and other sources. The, 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 the hills, what, dripping with wine. And... This is certainly a super abundance of wine. I mean, that has to be the point of 
the size of the jars, uh, as imprecise as they are, he's just saying, it's a lot. Yeah. He's not, he's not, and they fill them up to the brim. Don't think that there's just a little bit of wine sloshing around in these things. They're just, they're just crazy with wine. And the party goers, what it makes the party so much better than what they could have made it themselves. So it says in Greek, it, it, it just says that they, they hold up to two or three measures. Okay. And um, I think your translation says how many gallons a piece? 20 to 30. 20 to 30 gallons a piece. So you're talking maximally. 180 gallons of wine. Tell me that party's not going to go on for a, a while. And right? And and tell me that that is not an absolute superabundance. I mean, if we had 300 people at a party, we wouldn't get 180 gallons of wine. Would we? I mean, That's I hope not. Of, That's a lot of wine. Well, that party we had at your house not too long ago, we only had like what? Four bottles of wine? Yeah. <laughs> I think I had you eight. Cheapskate. I had eight. <laughs> I had eight and four cases of beer. <laughs> but this, there is one thing that I like to uh, think about when I read this text. Jesus loves parties. You can't read this text and not think about the wedding feast that is to come. Like you said, I mean, to the brim, like over-the-top type stuff. This is our Lord. And that party is the party in His Word and Sacrament. Uh, it, on this earth and the eternal party in heaven. Yeah, but there, feast. but it does remind us that when we feast on the wine and the bread, which is the the body, the blood and the the body, we are experiencing a little a little slice of heaven on earth. Right, uh, not to be diminished at all. And then you know the the servants. What are we to make of these servants? They seem uh, a little shifty about the whole thing uh, because it's like well, the master of the thief doesn't know, master of the feast doesn't know. Uh, what's going on? But the servants, well, they sure knew. Is it just pointing to their witness, or is it uh, saying like there's sometimes a reluctance in these people to fully acknowledge the glory that they are beholding because it's it's a little outside of their kin? I think on my surface reading, it seems like the servants are doing something a little deceptive, right? They're not they're not being forthcoming. Like, well, we just did what this Jesus guy told us to do. They knew, but the master of the the master of the feast. Uh, winds up not knowing and just remarking at it. Maybe, and there, there's something wonderful about that too, right? This man, this master of the feast, receives the blessings of Christ kind of unawares, uh, but he still receives them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that there is a baptismal connection to make here. He, he brings the, the goodness of the of purification into a bigger reality. It's not drudgery to, to be cleansed. It is bringing you into a life of... of uh, a fullness of life that is unimaginable for you. And he receives it unawares. Just as an infant, you bring them to the font and, and they receive it unawares, but they still receive it. And actually, I th- I think, I, I personally, and I, I, I understand this is debatable, I think this is a powerful, powerful baptismal text. Well, I can't disagree with that. I would just, uh, and I know you don't disagree with me, I, I look at it and just walk away and say, Jesus does miraculous things with wine. Sure. And we don't pit baptism and the Lord's Supper against each other. Right. We bring them into harmony with each other. But you think about the sacrament of the altar and you go, okay. From the very uh, outset of John here in this first tetzerah, he does miraculous things with wine. And interestingly, John's the only gospel that does not record the institution of the sacrament. doesn't mean that John's not hinting at it all all along through various tetzerah. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then also the remark of the master of the feast, is he saying something about in the former days, God spoke to us by his prophets. And that was, that was pretty good wine. But now in these last days, he's given us the very best. And it's saying something about how his son, right? And then he, and he's saying something about how you had good, but here's the very best. And, and you are maybe a little bit too drunk with your obsession with the past to see what God is doing right in front of you. That'll preach. We have received even grace in the place of grace. For yeah. the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right. And again, complete denial of any attempt to pit the Old Testament against the New, which we're mm-hmm. sometimes so wont to do. There's harmony, but there's also fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Uh, you know, it's kind of wrap this whole thing up, and here we have an archetypal sign. What does it do? It talks about the, re- the soul redemption in Christ. It points to his hour and his glory, which is his suffering uh, and death on the, on the Holy Cross. It points to the, the gladness that comes from that. It points to fulfillment of the Old Testament, um, of the entire Old Testament, law through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. You know, what else, what else do you want to pull out of here? I mean, there's just a so, so much. And I find this, this is, a, this is a text that we encounter, Pastor Kearns, every year in Epiphany. I think this is one of the toughest texts to preach on because it's so rich. Where do you, you pull one string and every other string comes along with it. Well, if I've got to preach at this uh, coming Epiphany, season, I think I'll go with Pastor Oakry's law with the water and Jesus with the wine. So thank you very much, Pastor Oakry. Well, you're welcome. Iron sharpens iron. I, I think what's interesting is I, what, we're, what we're plumbing here is I think on a surface reading without some elaboration, it, it seems so mundane. Like he just turned water into wine. I mean, it's like, okay, but that's not raising somebody from the dead. That's not giving the blind their sight. Why is this why is this a marker? Why would this even be the archetypal sign? And and I, what are what we're trying to bring forth here is the fact that there's a lot of stuff working behind the scenes and nibbling at the corners of your mind, and you do have to be able to connect the dots to the glory and the witnessing, and and you know see how ultimately we're we're not just giving this scene as as solely in isolation, not just a tessera, but part of the broader mosaic. We're right at the middle is the cross of Christ and. And all of these things in their own individual beauty, uh, as we pull back, we see how the entire mosaic is pulling us into the cross. That's that's an excellent way of putting it. And what it what it also means, it seems to me, is that as we encounter other semea, as we encounter other signs in the Gospel of St. John, we, we will fail in reading them if we don't read them the way this one operates, which is pointing to the cross. And then finally, maybe... You know, if he can do this through his performative word with water and wine, what can he do with your sins? Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. Let's just jump into verse 12, deal with that all by itself because it's a seam verse, and then we'll move into the cleansing of the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So Cana, let's talk about the geographical location of Cana. Where is Cana? It is in Galilee. Yes. Yeah, it's in the north. Yeah. Right? Um, near Nazareth, in fact. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's, uh, who knows, are these relatives, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're acquaintances of the family somehow or other. This is a direct response to a query that had come up earlier. What good can come out of Nazareth? Well, here it is. Every good. <laughs> Every good, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, and we're, we're speaking kind of like, uh, certainly not, not on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of up in the... It's uh, in the hills. It's in the hills. To uh, the west. Yeah. Again, the, the distances here are not astronomical by any sense. Sometimes you see a map of Israel and you're thinking, oh, man, that's pretty big. No, it's, you can walk across it in a day if you wanted to. Correct. Yeah. Which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It is interesting to note that his brothers are with him at this point uh, because you have other accounts uh, where the brothers, and maybe it's arguable, but even mom, start thinking he is just Fruit Loop. I mean, he's just lost his mind. <laughs> right, right. But his brothers are, are with him, uh, whether they're traveling because they all have to travel together, as you said, to go see extended family or what have you. But the brothers and the disciples and, and Mary, they're all traveling together. Right. Late, later on, they say, uh, why, don't, why don't you, the brothers, uh, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and show that you're the Messiah? I think they're, they're provoking him because yeah. they don't believe it. But it is interesting. Why does Mary and, why, and, and his brothers, uh, whoever that may be, why are they traveling then to Capernaum? Because uh, that's more, uh, Capernaum in my mind is more Peter and the fishermen's home turf. Uh, we certainly know that Peter had a house there with his uh, presumably wife, even if she's, uh, maybe he's a, a widower. But his mother-in-law is there, and all of that, and and so what's what's drawing them to this town? It's interesting. It is interesting, and who knows? Well, let's uh, pick it up with uh, thirteen and read. Uh, it seems to me that we ought to read through verse twenty-two. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up from Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Would we like to jump in on the direct citation of Psalm 69 here? I think that might be an interesting place to, to go. Um, you know, the, the link to the Old Testament, unless somebody else has a, another jumping in place. So Psalm 69 is a rather long psalm, and as we've discussed so far, all you need to do uh, in the ancient world to, ev- to evoke an entire psalm is to give one line of it. They, they, they had these memorized like we memorize hymns. Psalm 69 is, is, as I said, super interesting and long. 
Um, and it's a messianic psalm. I actually wonder if we ought to read the whole thing and just get it out in here for the record. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept, and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies." You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of the servant shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So once you hear all of Psalm 69 and understand what Jesus was evoking here, this becomes an extremely rich event. It points to his, again, it points to his crucifixion. Explicitly, it points to his crucifixion. It points to his betrayal by his own um, uh, close um, company. Uh, it, it points to his forsakenness by the Father, but it also points to the redemption uh, that he works through, through all of this. It also points to you know what Augustine argues in the city of God, these, these two cities that since the days of Cain and Abel have been built. I like that. <clears throat> so in a sense, by, by talking this way, uh, Jesus is, is then presenting you with, look, you, you're in one of two places, one of two cities. Two trees? Yeah, which one are you Two in? destinies? Yep. Heaven and hell? I mean, it, it's, a, it, it's right there. And it helps you understand why he's moved to such forceful rejection of what is happening because there's a, it's, it's almost like an invasion. You have invaded the city of God, as it were. With your with your buying and selling, with your buying and selling, with the city of man, mm-hmm. with the with the with the ways and the thoughts of man, uh, because he he puts up with so much, he puts up with so much garbage all the time, with patience, with teaching, a little frustration here and there. How long will I put up with you, right? But this is the time where he becomes a man of action and even a man of violence. And you really have to think like, what is driving him so passionately here? It's certainly not just sin. I mean, he's encountering sin everywhere he goes. But there is something special in in this house of God, the house of his father. And you think about the zeal that we have for the church, for pure doctrine, for the right administration of the sacraments. <laughs> We're fallen. Think about his zeal. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, yeah. Our zeal can't compare to what's what's driving him you, you look like a bobblehead speechless <laughs> no that's that's exactly right no yeah. and and you know and it it really you need to be careful with this text because in popular usage it becomes an it becomes an excuse for radical disruptive destructive behavior and and that's such a poor way to read this i mean that this is focusing in on the the tessera without seeing it in its broader context, and then also utterly misreading Christ's purpose, that he's some revolutionary protester fighting the man. Uh, no, <laughs> he's not. He's, he's trying to preserve the good gift of God. Again, this, this also pushes back against the people who would act like the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a fiction, Right? We talked about that in the past. It's not a fiction. It was truly salvific. It, it was a uh, sacrament or at least a sacrament-like thing that God had given to his people that really did offer the forgiveness of sins. It, didn't, it offered it in Christ, but it did offer it. And Christ is there trying to say, this matters. It's going to pass away because the true temple has come. The true dwelling of God has come into your midst. But at that moment, he doesn't go into the temple and say, well, who cares? Because this building is just... 
it's just a building, right? This that this is this whole modern language we hear. Well, that building offered, mattered an awful lot to Jesus. And so, what you could say is that doctrine matters. That's the, that's the whole point. It's yeah. it's it's the it's the abusive, false doctrine that Jesus is after here. It's not the temple. Um, it's not the system. It's it's what people have invested or incorrectly interpreted uh, about about all of that. And so, um, this this is the wrath that the Lord wishes to come upon those who pervert his doctrine. Let their own table before them become a snare. When they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. Make their camp a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You know, going back to the, uh, the two cities, there have been times in history where God has done just that. Uh, you, you think of the Tower of Babel. I mean, this was, a, this was a clear city that is being made in defiance of God. And what does God do? Well, he confuses their language, i.e., he strikes it down. Uh, even before that, obviously, you had the city of God and you had the city of man. And what did the Lord do? He flooded the city of man. And it started all over just with the city of God. This is not uh, what we're reading here in, in Psalm 69 is not something that's a, uh, an anomaly. That's a fantastic point. And, um, you know, there's... People accuse us, Missouri Synod Lutherans, Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, Evangelical Lutheran Synod Lutherans, of being legalists about doctrine. So, so you have legalists, and uh, legalists, just so we can define this, you know, demand that you live an outwardly perfect life, kind of pharisaical in a sense. And the accusation against us is that, you know, yeah, you guys drink beer and you, you, you use four-letter words and stuff like this, and you're obviously not legalists in that regard, but when it comes to doctrine, you're, you're a bunch of legalists. That's because doctrine is life. Doctrine is life. And all, all that the Lord has asked us to do is to repeat that which he has given us to, to repeat. Yeah. And, and when we pervert that, the sin of false doctrine destroys the church so much quicker than the sin of adultery or the sin of stealing or the sin of disobedience. In it fact, leavens the whole lump. It, it does. And that's yeah. why it matters. And I, and I think, you know, you read the epistles. There's obviously lots of things being touched on in them. But I would say, broadly speaking, the two largest things that are being touched on is God's people suffering. And then right there with it is false teaching. And... It is, if, if you just read the epistles through and you're just kind of like paying attention to when he's talking about dealing with suffering and dealing about false teaching, you're going to, your mind is going to be blown at how prominent those two themes are throughout the epistles. And so like, let's take real seriously false teaching then. And I, and we live in an age that does not take false teaching serious, nearly seriously enough. And it, it is like giving somebody a glass of water that's just filled with like debris and detritus and it's just murky and gross and you're saying drink this and me saying no i want the pure water 
That's not legalism. That's just, that. that is my life. That is my health. I am going to drink the pure, uh, unadulterated waters of what God has given us. And that is what our obsession with doctrine is about. Good. I, I actually love this point that you made about the epistles being full of suffering and right doctrine. Why? Because because the Christian is made over in the image of of our Redeemer. And here in this episode in John, we see how our Redeemer is consumed by zeal for his father's house, which is really a, a matter of doctrine. And, and a righteous zeal at and that. And a righteous zeal. Yeah, it's not unrighteous. He's not just being a prig. Um, and on the heels of that comes suffering. He is going to be put to death. Well, we are made in the image of Christ. Yeah, and we follow after him. If we suffer with him, uh, that we may be glorified with him. So you said earlier that uh, verse 12 is a seam verse that really connects these two uh, narratives. Would you say that this first of signs, which, as you said, points to his death on the cross, this is explicitly stated here in this second tessera? Totally. Look at verse 19. Jesus responded and said to them, tear down this temple and in three days I shall raise it up. And you know, if you're scratching your head about what that means, uh, go to verse 22. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things, and they believed in the scriptures and in the word which Jesus said. Oh, I, I meant verse 21. Uh, he was saying these things about the temple of his body. But that three-day connection. Again, there's a three. Yes, right. There's a three-day connection, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. And so, and th- and this is how, like, thematically, they work separately. But but then there's thematic things. They're like, oh, this is thematically happening here. This is thematically happening here. And again, broadly speaking, everything is sweeping us towards the cross. Right. So whether we take these as again as temporally connected, or just thematically connected, uh, it, it really doesn't matter from my perspective. Yeah. It, it, like if we wanted to line these up on a timeline, I I don't need to, I don't need that. Well, certainly, it's their thematic connection is is more critical than their chronological connection to Good. each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, we've been talking about the two cities, uh, and th- those become so evident in especially Revelation. We've been talking about how those two cities were there at the very beginning with Babel, and then what does Babel become? The Babylon, right? Versus Zion, and we do see that. Con- I mean. Don't think this is a small theme in Scripture. This is a this is a theme that that anchors Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. And Jesus here is bringing that 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 picture to bear on us. Our enemies and friends. Yep. Think about how Psalm sixty nine is this call to repentance to these people because you know you reread the Psalms and we never read it as we're the enemies. We're the ones always asking for retribution against our enemies. And Jesus is explicitly saying to these people in the temple, you are the enemy. It's not the Gentile. It's not the tax collectors. It's not the sinners. It's you. And that draws us into this picture where people will believe in him. Uh, Through what? Through repentance, through their own acknowledgement of failure. Uh, And then... Uh, coming through, and and this is the two cities, right? It's it's saying where I am living is unacceptable. 
It looks wonderful to me, right? It looks good enough to me, but there is a, a Jerusalem the golden that I am being summoned to by my true and proper king. A city made without hands. Right. And what a, what a call that is then. Because he's not just, you know, when you're calling down retribution, at least when God calls down retribution, there's always space in there for repentance, right? When God smote uh, Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of, what, 10 souls, he would have spared them. It turns out that they were three, you know, there was only three or four folks there. But even then, did he smote those? Smite? Smite. Smitten? No, he, he said, you who are faithful, flee. Flee from this city of man to to God. Now, I mean, there's lots of twists and turns on the way there. I mean, let's uh, not get too lost in the woods on this. But the threat of, of God's righteous retribution against sin is always a call for us to repent and flee to Christ. And to that point... Not that we're trying to prognosticate our, you know, current situation with what has gone on in our country with uh, this pestilence that has affected the entire world. I mean, I think we've all come to the conclusion pretty early on that the Lord is winnowing his church. He is essentially walking through the city of God and... He's got his whip. Got his whip. He's turning over the tables. And, man, he's making a big mess of things. But it's his church. He can do with it what he wants. And we, we as pastors, we, we trust he's doing the right thing. And I think to connect this way. Even that, though it looks so devastating. It looks awful, right? It, this, is, this is horrible. For us, for us pastors, for, for any faithful member of any congregation to sit here and think, you know, last year at this time, we had 30% more people in church, 20% more people in church. Well, and, and that was just in church. We had activities off the wall. We had, I mean, every day of the week, there was, there was something going on. Where the Word of God was being taught. Now, this has been taken away from us, but I think to your point— that is a call for repentance. It's not a call to say, oh, you know, I'm just fine. I'll just keep on going on, uh, you know, skipping out of church on Sunday, taking my kids to the soccer game. It's to say, oh, my God, what is happening in my church? But the problem is we're not seeing that. Right. But this is how this, is how this kind of thing works. I mean, look at the prayer of Psalm 69. It's not, you know, uh, rebuke them and they're going to turn around. It's turn their camp into a desolation and uh, never give them acquittal. So, I mean, there is, there is a, a, it's a, this is very stern. This is very stern. Anyone who's hearing this needs to hear it as a stern, stern warning. Take it to heart, repent, and return to the Lord your God. And flee the city of man, just like Lot and his wife and his daughters. I mean, run away from the city of man. It It is on a collision course with utter destruction. And, and, and how we can be at home in that place. You know, I went back home to see my family. And, um, you know, we all, as we age, we, you know, I don't live here. I'm not from Topeka. I don't, I don't feel at home here. And so you go back to the place where, used to feel at home and you don't feel at home there either you know and my wife's parents are dead we go back to where she's from 
she doesn't feel at home there. You know, she'd lived in the same house her entire life until we were married. It's sold. I mean, the places that were so cool that you used to frequent, they're run down. You know, nobody takes care of them anymore. I'll finish with this. My brother-in-law came in. He was wearing a t-shirt that said Eastland on it. And it had this Sun logo. I mean, I immediately saw that and said, where did you get that shirt? Because Eastland Mall was just where you went and hung out. It was leveled 20 years ago. There's nothing but a parking lot there. And just to see some, like, connection to to something that you remember and have really good memories about. You know, it's like, I want one of those shirts. I'll wear it in Topeka. Nobody's ever heard of Eastland Mall, you know. But... uh this is my point. We have we have grown so accustomed to the city of man. There you go. That's it. I think that's exactly the point. That that there is no. It was when you were talking about people just hearing this and running in the opposite direction. They're not gonna because they're very comfortable in the city of man. And God comes along and and makes us uncomfortable, and that's the suffering and. In our sinful flesh, we cry out, why, God? Why would you disrupt what makes me so comfortable? And God says, because ultimately it will leave you a desolation and you need something much better. You can't be comfortable with this world. That's, that's why we use the whole language of sojourning, mm-hmm. right? We use the whole, I am but a stranger here, right? And, it, and, and it, it, you know, it can be, I mean, it can feel very pious and, 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 and uh, maybe even a little bubbly, but man, no, I mean, you've got to embrace the truth. Like this land is a desert. It, it has mirages of wonderfulness. But, you know, we talk about how, uh, you know, I talk to old members and I'm like, hey, remember when uh, Macy's was downtown? I, I don't. <laughs> or I, I have a very shaky memory of that, you know, but those, those things like, oh, those were the good times, right? Uh, for me, you know, the good times, White Lakes Mall. For some folks, the good Westridge Mall, right? All of that stuff is is either gone or is on its way out the door. And it's also transitory. And, and this is the sad thing about the city of man is we just accept that nothing lasts. And then God comes along and says, I'm bringing you something that endures, not just for centuries, not just for millennia, for all eternity. And that's worth everything. And we in our sinful flesh just say, yeah, but I want a snow cone or something right, stupid, right, you know, right, right, right. like I'm, 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 yeah. this is, this is good enough, God. And God just keeps coming to us and saying, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. And that's why suffering is so critical for us because it makes us realize how not good enough this world is. And, you know, you talk to an old person who's had, you know, uh, a kidney taken out and their colon's missing and everything. And there's, and they, they know they go, pastor, this world isn't good enough anymore. And you're like, it never was good enough, but I'm glad that God has brought you to a place where you can see it. It's interesting that you uh, you're, you're talking about getting just getting older and coming to these realizations, and I I do think that there's a lot to be said for that. And you know, you you end up seeing these really really old people who are just they, they I mean, you walk in and they say, Pastor, I'm ready to go to heaven, right? I mean, they they, they will say it. That's the first words out of their mouth. Um. But I do think that one of the wonderful things the Lord does for us over over time is that he he teaches us um, 
we make this our confession. What the Lord says, this is what we believe, teach, and confess. But he makes us really believe it through the school of tentatio, of, of trial and, and tribulation. And um, one of those things, it's very simple. I mean, you, you haven't suffered by being in Topeka, Kansas. No, not at all. But what the Lord has done for you through that is, is this wonderful realization that, yeah, Topeka ain't my home. Charlotte ain't my home. Wilmington ain't my home. Heaven's my home. Right. Yeah. And it really does. I mean, it's good. It is still tentatio, but it does it does make you long for that. Mm-hmm. It 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 makes you realize after you go back to these places that you thought helped ground you. Those, those places don't. They're they're just not there. Uh, I was telling my son as we left Charlotte. Like anybody else, I guess, you know, you go out of the the development uh, and you're really at a T intersection. And I was telling him, you know, when I was your age, we always used to turn left because that's where everything was. Now we never turn left. We always we always turn right because that's where the new development is. And that's where the new all the activity is. We always go this way. Well, what happens when you you only got two choices, left or right? What what happens when it's terrible that way and it becomes terrible that way? You just stay at home. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, this day and age is definitely like some of us are just stay at home or you move out to the country, right? And, and, you know, it it does show sin makes it very powerful for for lots of us to to flee. And I guess that, that brings us into these final verses, right? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And I think, you know, there's always, in each of the Gospels, there's always a a critical tension point where, you know, and I think in the synoptics, it's kind of grounded in the disciples, like, why, why are some people rejecting you, Jesus? It doesn't make any sense to us because here we are, right? They don't get the whole picture. They're, they're, they're a mess, but they're there, right? And it's, got, it's mysterious to them. And here we're bringing, this is bringing that own mystery to bear. Lots of people are believing in him, but, but not all. And some people are just outright rejecting him. Some of them are outright plotting his murder. How is this revelation? How are these signs not being properly interpreted and seen by everybody? And it's a tension that that permeates, and and honestly, it gets. I think it gets a lot more play and fleshed out in John because you see it pop up. I mean, he knows the heart of man, and then a man will come to him in the middle of the night, Nicodemus, and he's like, "I know your heart. We, we're being set up for some of these tensions." John six, the heart of man will be powerfully and and in fact painfully revealed to us mm-hmm. as many flee from him. So, so why do they not? Why do they not see the signs? I think the answer is. I think the answer is relatively simple. I think it's that. Um, well, they see them. They see. They they see them. They don't believe them. Why? Jesus actually drops the breadcrumbs. He drops Psalm sixty nine. They should be seeing in this the Messiah who's gonna who's gonna have his people turn their back on him, who's gonna become the enemy of you know the quote unquote enemy of everybody uh, who is going to bear the wrath of God who uh, who is going to bring as a result of all of this great joy to those who are faithful right. 
He, he gave them the key. And they don't want to hear it. So it, it all has to do, I, I'm, I'm going to make this argument, it all has to do with your orientation to the Word of God, which means it has to do with your orientation toward God's doctrine. Amen. And, and again, you're not going to hear that in any other denomination. You're going to struggle sometimes to hear that from a Lutheran. But doctrine is life, is part of our, our, our it's foundational for us. That's why we say we believe, teach, and confess. That's why we go back to this, these, these source doctrinal statements that are, that we call the confessions, right? The catechisms wrapped up in there. That's why we bring a confessional, a doctrinal uh, a book to our people and say, this is, these are the teachings of your faith. Uh, that's different than a lot of what a lot of other denominations do, but we do it because again, this is the pure mountain spring water that, and the mountain is, you know, Mount Sinai, it's, it's God bringing his goodness to bear on us. It's Mount, it's, it's Mount Calvary. It's, it's, it's the pureness is there and we don't want it to be adulterated. Life is messy. Life is full of mud and, and dirt and, and debris. Uh, but God invades that. And, and our clericals are, are evidence of that, right? I, am, I wear this black clerical because I am full of dirt and debris and filth. But here's, here's, a, here's a teaching that is worthwhile. And that's why my throat is covered in white. Because despite every human expectation that dirty things make clean things dirty, God comes and he says, I am the clean thing that makes dirty things clean. And it's life-changing. Just like the, the lepers that Jesus touched, yeah. right? I mean, nobody would touch a leper because you would become contaminated. Jesus actually touches the leper. He doesn't become contaminated. The other person, the leper, becomes clean. Amen. exactly what you're saying. Well, that gets us through chapter three, or excuse me, uh, up to chapter three, gets us through chapter two. And next time we'll look at, uh, can't wait actually to talk about the discourse with Nicodemus and uh, the other treasures that chapter three holds for us. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS Topeka.org.